Um, it's my great, great pleasure to introduce my co-chair as our first speaker. Uh, many of you know Jeannie Marazzo is the division chief at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. And uh, several of you have referred to her as a national treasure, and I think I would agree with that. Uh, <laughs> she's a terrific lecturer, and we are really very pleased to have lured her up from Birmingham to talk about STIs from a national perspective. Jeannie. Right. Um, thank you so much for being here, and thank you, Tripp, and to the IAS USA for doing this inaugural course. I'm incredibly excited about this. Um, we have been talking about a new approach to care and prevention that essentially parallels the status-neutral approach we're thinking about for HIV prevention. And so that's really what this, this course um, was intended to do. So with that, let's get started. These are my disclosures. And, and I have a pretty easy task this morning because I'm really just going to set the stage for you uh, for some incredibly um, knowledgeable speakers to go into much more detail about some of the topics that are on the agenda. The one exception that I will talk about a little bit more in detail in this session is gonorrhea. We don't have a separate talk on gonorrhea today. Again, think about when the day is over, what sorts of things you would have liked more information on, what sort of things we maybe could have summarized a little bit more quickly, because this is really somewhat of an experimental and adaptive process. But these are the learning objectives, which hopefully you got a chance to take a look at. Why are we even here, though? I guess the question is, um, you know, a lot of people have said to me, well, STIs are just, um, they just come with the territory, right? Um, you have sex, you're going to get STIs. Well, um, and, and we have biomedical prevention now for HIV. Between PrEP and treatment as prevention, people should not be transmitting or acquiring HIV pretty much in a perfect world. The problem with that, I think, is that it's really reductive, um, and it doesn't really face the fact that sexual health um, is a really a human right um, that is not necessarily uh, related just to your risk of getting HIV. And classifying people by high risk for HIV, low risk for HIV, really ignores the fact that sexual health is a fundamental piece of our identity. And I really would like to get away from thinking about people in the context of their risk for a single pathogen. So the idea here is to really say, that mantras like getting to zero, as Ken Mayer and Henry Dervise said in this very nice piece, won't, won't really ever be achieved unless we can really address the role of STIs in potentiating the uh, uh, HIV epidemic, epidemic pandemic, um, and that you can't really go down that road without thinking about the way that economic and gender inequality and human rights challenges contribute to the STI epidemic, and you're going to hear a lot about that today. Most of our STIs are incredibly more common in the most vulnerable populations that we take care of, and there are lots of reasons for that. We probably won't get into all of that this morning, but I do want to put that out there because, again, you know, talks about gonorrhea, talks about herpes, talks about PrEP don't really get to this, I think, incredibly, for me, animating um, issue about why we need to talk about this. And obviously, I'm really passionate about this and hope that um, you all are because you're here. Um, so I just have a very few introductory slides and a few slides about gonorrhea to take you into the day. Um, and there, 
things that I think really underlie, the main themes that I think underlie the reasons that I'm here are outlined in the first few slides. The first um, slide that I want to point out to you is a really interesting study that has come out of the Melbourne Sexual Health Center in the last, uh, last year. And if you don't know, Australia is so far ahead of us in terms of sexual health and HIV, uh, in, in that the whole country has really um, reduced incidence of, for example, HPV immunization because it's compulsory uh, in schools. Uh, so it's, it's a really good model, I think, to take a look at. And what this group um, did was to look at a retrospective cohort study of over 5,000 men who have sex with men who attended the Melbourne Sexual Health Center from 2007 to 2013. And the men had to have at least two HIV tests within 12 months of each other. They found 81 incident HIV infections, and they looked at what a simple risk predictor group would be for those incident HIV infections. And what they found were that four characteristics really helped to hone in on predicting who those incident infections were. Um, inconsistent condom use during anal sex, injection drug use, use of post-exposure prophylaxis, probably a marker of recent unexposed risk, and any STI diagnosis in the last months. But what I would like you to look at is if you had any one of those characteristics, the population attributable fraction for HIV infection was actually 60%, any two was 30%, and any three was 10%, and STIs accounted for a very large proportion of this. And this says, basically, if you could eliminate H STIs, you would really likely affect the ongoing transmission of HIV, even in the setting of good biomedical prevention. The other thing, of course, that people are talking a lot about and is quite controversial is this whole question of whether PrEP, quote unquote, potentiates the transmission of STIs. And we can get into that discussion if you want to, and we probably will, and in my responses to it is who cares? Um, again, STIs are part of the landscape of sexual health. And you're not a bad person because you get STIs because you're using PrEP. And I feel like that's where we really need to sort of come together here. But this paper in JAMA got a lot of press, and I think it's a well-done analysis. Um, and basically what they did was to look at the incidence of STIs during follow-up in a large number of participants um, in the PrEP PX study team, again, uh, an Australian group. And what they basically showed looking at pre- and post-PrEP eras was that the incidence rates of these STIs went up in the post-PrEP era, even when you control for testing. Because the argument is that if you are having people on PrEP, you're seeing them more, you're testing them more, you're doing some extra genital and te testing and diagnosis, and you're going to diagnose more infections. I think this is probably the first and to date best article that really has controlled for frequency of diagnostic testing. It's not perfect, but it does suggest that this increase in STIs is not just a function of increased testing in people who are on PrEP. A lot of work to do here. It may not be true for all populations, but I think it's a really interesting concept that you should know about. So let's um, ask you, what do you think? What percentage of new HIV infections in men who have sex with men are estimated to be attributable to gonorrhea and chlamydia? This is saying if we wiped out gonorrhea and chlamydia in this population, how much HIV incidence would we take out? So take a guess there. Less than two, none, they have no effect. Probably not true or we wouldn't be here. Less than 2%, 5%, 10%, or 25%. And this is assuming people are on PrEP, on treatment as prevention, whatever. So go ahead and vote. 
Got 42 votes. What are we going for, Roxy, you think? 70? Till it slows down. Okay. I like it. Excellent participation. Let's go ahead and see what people think. 10% oh, is the winner. 25%. Good. I'm glad you're here. 5%, um, 11%. And the answer actually is 10%. Um, and this is a really interesting study, a modeling study that was published in the journal Sexually Transmitted Diseases from uh, folks at the CDC in Emory, where they modeled um, the relative risk for HIV acquisition on HIV incidence in, again, men who have sex with men. And you don't need to sort of totally focus on these detailed numbers, but what I like about this was they looked at the relative risk of acquisition by the anatomic site of the STI, chlamydia or gonorrhea. So remembering that you know you can have infections in both sites, we focused quite a lot on rectal infection. We really don't know very much about urethral infection and the risk of urethral infection and HIV in either homosexual or heterosexual men. Men who have sex with men or men who are having sex with women. The bottom line, line is that um, if you look at the relative risk by anatomic site, um, you can see that it increases quite a lot there um, as you go up with your estimate of HIV incidence. Um, and overall, what this group said was about 10% of HIV infections are attributable to these STIs. Again, regardless of good PrEP adherence or viral suppression with treatment as prevention. So I think a nice, a nice thing. So let's take a look at, look at the numbers, take a step back, take a look at what the landscape looks like. Um, if you look at what the WHO and the US CDC say, everybody agrees that there has been a dramatic recent increase in bacterial STI incidence in this era of effective prevention. The WHO website has a nice map with um, the new curable annual infections, and I will just point out that these numbers are staggering, 86 million in Sub-Saharan Africa every year, 75 million in the Americas, and then the CDC um, as you're going to hear a lot more from uh, Sue Blank in the next talk, focusing on the New York data, um, last published their surveillance estimates in 2017. 2018 data are coming out next week, unfortunately not in time for us to include them in this course. I suspect they're going to be more impressive from what I hear, which is also staggering. But basically, if you look at the increases in chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis, you're seeing pretty much double-digit increases for those bottom two diseases and 5% for chlamydia. The problem, too, is that we're having increased antimicrobial resistance in gonorrhea. We have to figure out how to handle extragenital infection. We've got challenges with the treatment of chlamydia in the rectum, which I'll mention. And then you're going to hear a lot about syphilis today because you need to. I'm sure you're seeing it, and it's a real challenge. So let's just take a look at a couple of trends I want you to be aware of. And again, these are all going to be amplified, um, except for gonorrhea, in the next talks. Um, a lot of people, I showed this slide, um, slide at Croydon, and several people came up to me afterwards and said, oh my gosh, I didn't realize where we were with syphilis. So look at that graph on the upper left. Left. That's a picture or a graph of primary and secondary syphilis in the United States. Primary, remember, is the chancre, secondary is disseminated. That's a frame, time frame of about three to six months of acquisition, so that's what we use for measuring recent infections. And you can see from 1963 to 2016 or so, um, in men who have sex with men, men who have sex with women, and women, the number of cases in these two groups have remained fairly steady, although you're going to see an increase in women shortly. But if you look at where we are right now in men who have sex with men, we have eclipsed the height of 
the epidemic in the 1970s and the pre-AIDS era. So we are now back to the future with regard to syphilis infection in MSM. Again, not a surprise, I think, to those of you in the room. And when you look at the data um, over a closer period of time, you'll see that 88% of the early syphilis cases that we're seeing are occurring in men, and they are mostly occurring in men who have sex with men. That's not all, though, and I really want to emphasize this is not limited to men who have sex with men. If you look at the data for women, what you see is this really insidious creep in the last 10 years in the primary and secondary syphilis rate in women. And very disturbingly, for the first time in recent memory in my career, actually, a really worrisome increase in congenital syphilis cases. Last year, there were 918 congenital syphilis cases reported in the US, which is almost certainly an underestimate. That's unacceptable, and it's a public health crisis. I mean, we really should not be dealing with this. And a reminder that most congenital cases of syphilis result in stillbirth or miscarriage. So we almost certainly aren't even counting those. In California, 50% of those cases occurred in women without prenatal care. Getting back to my very first slide about vulnerable people and the increased risk to HIV. Um, and there were very strong links to meth and heroin use. So be aware that this is occurring, and I'm sure you are seeing cases in New York, as you will hear uh, from Mike and Sue. Okay. So let's just talk a little bit about gonorrhea because I'm not gonna have time to go back to this, although we are gonna get to it in the cases, and this is what we're gonna quickly talk about here. Again, we wanna keep, keep us moving this morning so we have plenty of time for discussions. So this is a really important concept, and I'm very eager to see what you think. According to the CDC's Gonococcal Isolate Surveillance Program, which I should tell you is a US-based national surveillance program that collects gonorrhea bacterial isolates from men who, who present to STD clinics in the US, so it's a very representative male sample. What percent of gonorrhea isolates from men who have sex with men, that should say, I apologize, that's a typo. So MSM were resistant to ciprofloxacin in 2016. None less than two, 11, 24, or 40. Now you might say, we don't use ciprofloxacin, um, but, um, we don't have many options, and there are cases where you might want to think about a quinolone. So just go ahead and take a guess. Remember, should be sorry, men who have sex with men there, so MSM. Resistant to fluoroquinolones, because Cipro is representative of all fluoroquinolones, so resistant to Cipro in 2016. Okay, Roxy, I think we're at 60, so let's see what people say. 65, great. So most of you thought it was 24%. Good. I'm glad you think it was that high. Um, some of you thought it was not that common, and then several people got the right answer. It's actually 40%. So let's take a look at um, this. Um, and again, next week we're going to have new data. So let's go to the next slide. Um, this is the data that I'm talking about. These are. Um, this is just a... Um, uh, a graph that shows you the, um, the rate of gonorrhea in something called the STD surveillance network in the United States in men who have sex with men in black, um, and then men who have sex with women and all women um, on the bottom line there. And you can see these numbers have been increasing. And you probably have heard about these monster gonorrheas, right? The rare strains of gonorrheas identified, gonorrhea identified in Canada and the UK. I think probably the one that got the most pressed was the case that occurred in the United Kingdom last year where there was a patient who had traveled to Southeast Asia and acquired an infection with a gonorrhea pathogen 
It was resistant to ceftriaxone with high level resistance to azithromycin that required treatment with ertapenem. So for those of you who do inpatient ID, you know that ertapenem is something that we use for incredibly complicated complex intra-abdominal infections. For example, it's IV. It's not something we're going to be using in our STD clinics to, uh, to treat gonorrhea, but who knows? Um, again, and then two new cases of resistant gonorrhea in the UK last January. There have been cases everywhere, including Canada, Japan, France. Scandinavia, we have not had one in the U.S. yet, but as we're going to hear from Dr. Blank and probably later, we may be running out of time with that uh, in mind. So um, what do we say we should be doing for treatment of gonorrhea with this in mind? These are the current CDC STD treatment guidelines. Um, remember, you always want to treat with two antibiotics. That's what they say right now. The dose is ceftriaxone 250 in a single injection, and then you're supposed to treat with azithromycin in one gram. That was recommended for theoretical benefit of staving off evolution of antimicrobial resistance. Has that been effective? No. I think it's unequivocally not been effective. And that's why this is not official, so don't quote me, although I know I'm being broadcast, so people are going to do it. I think it's okay. I think it's okay. I'll give you a little sort of insider preview. Um, in June, we had a meeting at CDC to revise uh, the CDC STD treatment guidelines. Vigorous discussion about what we should do about the recommendations for gonorrhea. These are not final yet, but I am pretty sure, um, I would I wager, maybe 98% sure, that we're going to recommend an increased dose of gonorrhea. The United Kingdom uh, is already doing this, and some countries like Japan have moved to a full gram, uh, again, to compensate for the increasing um, MICs or tendencies towards resistance in this organism. And we're going to get rid of this, almost certainly, because what have we done with this recommendation? All we've done is increase the rates of macrolide resistance in gonorrhea. So it really hasn't helped us. And as we'll talk about later, that presents a huge problem for treating people with cephalosporin intolerance for gonorrhea, right? So we'll come back to that a little bit later. Um, so that's probably going to be the new recommendation, but again, we should know more. That's probably going to be out um, either as an MMWR in the next couple of months, and Sue may know more than I, or with the new edition of the guidelines, which are slated for hopefully next spring, 2020. So very exciting. Um, the challenge was with gonorrhea go beyond, I think, antimicrobial resistance. The problem with gonorrhea in the pharynx, I think, is huge. And there's been a whole um, discussion, in fact, at NIH, we had a meeting on extragenital infections this past spring, talking about how agitated should we be about pharyngeal gonorrhea? Does it really matter? Is it a breeding ground for resistance? That's a big question. Um, is it really going to cause any problems? How much of um, the ongoing transmission of gonorrhea is attributable to the pharyngeal reservoir. None of these things do we really have answers to, right? There are some people who say we don't even need to bother to look for it because it's just going to go away anyway, and there are no sequelae. It's an interesting perspective because it's a really important thing to challenge, too, because with the incidence of infections we're seeing and with the recommendations for screening, we're screening a lot of throats and we're finding a lot of infections and we're having to treat them. So I want you to think critically about that and we're going to get into that a little bit. 
Um, people are so desperate right now for answers and solutions about that, that again, the uh, snappy Australians, uh, cheeky Australians, I guess is a better word, have started to look at perhaps thinking about novel ways to eradicate pharyngeal gonorrhea, and they've started looking at a mouthwash uh, protocol. And if you haven't seen that, it's kind of an interesting study. Um, there's a big debate about whether that can actually be an effective way to just sprints out your gonorrhea, sort of, I think of it like as pharyngeal douching, you know, so, um, <laughs> bad image, I'm sorry, it's early. Um, but anyway, so, so seriously though, that's how, that's how desperate we are to be thinking about this. So just so you know what's going on there. Um, this is more of a reference slide for you, but I do want to point out that there are novel antimicrobials under study for gonorrhea, and I would say um, a couple of them are really uh, promising, particularly zodiflotacin, which we published a paper about in the New England Journal just last year. Um, it's actually moved into a large international phase three trial. It's a new antibiotic, totally new class, similar to quinolones, but not exactly the same. Um, the problem with it is that even in this study, which was pretty small, it had limited activity against at the pharynx, and that's always going to be our Achilles heel, which is why it's so important to figure out if those infections matter. So just to let you know, that's promising, but it's not going to solve our pharyngeal problem. And then you've got a couple of other things, jepatitisin that seems to work, and then these things that did not work. So again, really challenging. My last couple of slides, again, I have one more minute, I think, um, is um, just to prep you up, no pun intended, for this discussion about what we do while we wait for a vaccine. And if you haven't heard about it, some of you are probably doing it. Um, the um, the Ypergay trial published the results of DoxyPrep, uh, in which they randomized men who have sex with men in France to using post-exposure prophylaxis after unprotected sex with doxycycline. Um, and looked at whether that reduced their subsequent incidence of gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. And the bottom line is, uh, no pun intended, that the reduced chlamydia was reduced by almost 70%, um, syphilis was reduced by almost 70%, gonorrhea was not reduced at all. Lots of discussions. There are trials going on. Um, again, lots of concern about this gonorrhea thing because if we're not affecting gonorrhea, then should we be doing this and are we increasing resistance? Public Health England has strong stance against it. The CDC has not made any um, uh, um, position on it. Um, and in New York, I'm sure it's being done and under a lot of discussion. Last thing I'll just say is a reminder of chlamydia proctitis. We're going to come back to this later. We are seeing more of it, and we're certainly seeing more chlamydial rectal infection. So with that, I am going to stop, and I'm going to, I have to thank Ina Park for